Hello, creeps. Welcome to the Horror Vanguard. I'll be your ghost. I mean host for today's exciting tale of terror. A specter is haunting Resident Evil Retribution. <laughs> Hello everyone and welcome to this week's mini episode. Uh we are pseudo-completing our Resident Evil series today. Uh, we started this during our pandemic mini-series that uh, turns out would have lasted seven eternities, so we decided to break that up. Um, we talked about Resident Evil, the final chapter already in a previous episode, uh, so we're kind of wrapping up today with RE5 Retribution. Uh, my name is Ash, one of your co-ghosts. Uh, how's, it, how's it going over there, John? <laughs> Uh, I am. I am very good. I am very excited about talking about this one, um, uh, and and I'm in a I'm I'm in a good mood. This is going to be a fun episode. Uh, but before before we have fun, before we can have any enjoyment in this world, we uh, have to share with you a very important message. This program was made possible by contributions from listeners like you. Go to Patreon.com/slash/HorrorVanguard and get access to bonus episodes and other exclusive content. Thank you. You'll forgive me if I don't stay around to watch. I just can't cope with freaky stuff. So I know one of the things that we wanted to talk about um, were the technical aspects of this show. Uh, Resident Evil 5 colon Retribution, the continuing saga of Mila Jovovich just kicking people in the head. Um, I, as as a cinematic experience, uh, this the, the really, to me, this franchise has been about um, a kind of love story between um, Mila Jovovich's feet and people's skulls. Um, <laughs> and just the meeting in the most impressive ways. Uh, and uh, just right off the bat, I was super excited for for doing this entire kind of retrospective because um, the kind of broad critical consensus that I had picked up was that, um, you know, the, the, the RE films weren't amazing, but, you know, they got progressively better. And I have to say, I think that was 100% correct because this is easily my favorite one out of all of them so far. Yes, the, the, this is this is, I think, the, this is the best one. Right, in the Paul W.S. Anderson Resident Evil cinematic universe, out of all six films, this one is king. Uh, well, I guess we'll have to wait and see. There's supposedly a new reboot of the franchise coming out this year. Uh, Paul W.S. Anderson and Mila Jovovich are not attached to it. Uh, well, who cares then? <laughs> yeah, right, so it's it's going to be, this is a schism in RE cinema. So we'll see, we'll see what the heretics, what theses they nail upon our door. But at this point, um, RE5 is is easily my favorite in the series because this one is um, a cinematic madhouse. <laughs> yeah, it's it's a lot weirder than than any of the others. It's a lot weirder, and it's it's trying to do things that in previous films Paul W S Anderson has deliberately not done. Um, so I am I am saying this is his growth film. You know he's he's moving into a new kind of style as a filmmaker. Um, but we should be honest. We should be honest that that does come with some 
kind of issues that I think we should point out first, right? There are some, there are some, you know, we're not, we're not, we don't spend huge amounts of time talking about the technical side of filmmaking, but there are a few kind of maybe immediately obvious things we should pick up on, right? Uh, yes, and that would be the fact that besides Mila Jovovich and our other returning stars, this movie is um, spiritually. I think this kind of feels like it's it's not the last movie in the Paul W S Anderson live action re series, but it is the love letter to the series itself. It is the sweet farewell. Um, all, all of all of our characters that have tragically died in previous re episodes, uh, re movies that we've grown attached to, they're back. Um, because they're all clones and that's fine um yeah. and the, all yeah. of their acting is great mila jovovich is great there's another uh lost little girl in this one um and she's just a phenomenal child actress like killer work all around um all of our supporting cast are are possibly reading off of cue cards like these their their line deliveries it almost feels like as part of I, I don't know this for sure but it almost feels like as part of the making of this movie uh, uh, Paul W. S. Anderson was like, "Hey, go play the Resident Evil games, and and learn your characters." And and the dialogue, the English dub dialogue in the RE games is awful, and yeah. really goofy. And you know, props to Paul W. S. Anderson for making it feel like the gaming experience. Um, but maybe you shouldn't have done that. <laughs> um, yeah, I think what we can say is that the supporting cast are trying their hardest. Um, uh, but God bless them. Some of them are just not not very good, um, and I think you're completely correct. A lot of it does sound like the voice acting from a PS2 cutscene. Yeah, absolutely. Which like I I like as like a camp thing, and I also like that as like I know this is something that you want to talk about, but I think I'll, I'll lead in like that's a, it's almost experimental. Um, yeah, yeah. The the question of adapting a video game to a movie is is always a real challenge. Because one, you have to pare down the text. Video games are almost uniformly longer than the movies that they're based off of. On top of that, like there, there's so much that needs to change. And so how do you do that interpretation is a very difficult challenge. And I think like it, making the weird decision to preserve the horrible, awkward, and blocky cue card dialogue <laughs> is, is a bold choice. <laughs> uh, yes. One that does not necessarily pay off, but I have to say we should respect the 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 risk taking, the artistic risk taking. Um and I think that comes across in some of the shot selection as well. There there are some moments here where I think both of us were thinking, yeah, probably should have used a different angle there, let's be honest. <laughs> or maybe we could have staged that one again. Who knows? <laughs> yeah, this 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 one has like there are several shots where it's like one hundred percent someone on a green screen and like it's the you you get this problem a lot with movies that kind of like over rely on green screen technology where it's like you can feel that the actor is in an empty room where everything is colored lime green and yep. there's nothing to look at, nothing to act next to, nothing to inspire emotion, and so it's just like okay. Uh, you know, you're in this weird lime-colored void and you have to act as if you're a cybernetic assassin sent by a company who's rappelling down from a helicopter. Um, I I also thought that that comes off really clearly in the car chase sequence mm, yeah. um, because it, gets, it constantly cuts to, like, uh, an internal shot of the car where we've got all four actors in frame 
and it's just so like painfully obvious that they're just one on, on one of those plinths. So it's like a it's sort of like those <laughs> interior shots, like a, an old sixties episode of Star Trek, where mm. the director has just been like, "Okay, now everybody lean left, and everybody lean right, and everyone lean <laughs> forward," and then it's just cut together with some pretty janky looking CG. Uh, and a few kind of like external shots of like a car crashing through some breakaway. Um, so yeah, there's a lot of this which which has aged very badly um, in terms of there are very few practical effects in this. Well, I think like like as with all these Aria movies, the a lot of the practical effects are just really good. They're solid, and just the CG in these movies, like. And it's always worth point, pointing out that Jurassic Park came out in the 90s and the CG of the T-Rex holds up today. Yeah, you know, exactly. Like, exactly. It's, this is just like CG became a way to exploit labor because it's not very unionized. And so you could get a lot of work in for not a lot of money. Um, and so you get you get things like the Uber liquor in this that looks awkward out of place like it's floating through these scenes the the standard cg problems with big monsters yeah 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 they 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 look basically weightless uh but you know let's let's not get too hung up on the negatives let's yes actually, let's pivot because <laughs> i know related know, related to these issues there's some positive things that you wanted to talk about i i i'm sort of fascinated i i i We've said before on this on this show that we don't really give any credence to auteur theory, um, mostly because filmmaking is a collaborative uh, and and almost kind of uh, it's it's a it's an art produced by the assemblage of various laboring forces, right? So this idea that yeah. you can go, okay, this is a film that about, this is a Tarantino film because of its style, and I don't find that convincing. Unless you're um, me and you're talking specifically about Rob Zombie, I would agree. <laughs> uh, yeah, don't, 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 don't drag us into more Rob Zombie discourse. <laughs> Not now. Um, but I actually think that this film is a really good example of seeing a, a director progress and kind of change in their filmmaking style. Because uh, I, we, I kind of teased this at the beginning. This is a, this is a weird... This is a weird mm-hmm. zombie film, uh, and it's it's structurally weird. It's weird in terms of the setting that it chooses. Uh, it's weird in how the narrative is kind of structured. Um, wh- wh- where do you want to start with well, I think- the bo- the bold avant garde cinema of Resident Evil Retribution? So, where I want to start with this is kind of like this is a meta text about filmmaking. And we, we had the seeds of this planted in the previous movie where one of our villains is a movie producer yep. who's just kind of craven and always looking for like ways to profit off of everyone's suffering. And in this one, uh, so in, uh, Mila Jovovich, uh, Alice, our, our character we've been with the whole time, um, wakes up in another Umbrella experimental facility. This one is in the former USSR, which we'll get into that in a moment. <laughs> um, Oh, we'll get to that. But our heroes have to kind of quest through a bunch of set pieces. Like uh, Resident or, uh, Umbrella is using these kind of like an artificial Tokyo, an artificial Moscow, an artificial uh, suburban American neighborhood as ways of uh, selling their bioweapons, right? So they'll use artificial Moscow 
uh, and to to stage a bioweapon attack that destroys the Russian government. And then they'll use the, the results from that experiment to sell the virus to Russia's enemies. And then they'll, they'll do the same thing in the American suburbs. And then they'll go to Russia and they'll be like, hey, look, at it destroyed America. Do you want this bioweapon? Mm. So that, that's kind of the setup that we have. But metatextually, we have our actors on a film stage running through smaller film stages. You know, and like there, there's even a lot of really interesting dialogue. Like they mention throughout the movie that like the the kind of staged sequences for these outbreaks in these centers are only meant to last an hour. They're all full of set pieces, right? The act, the uh, people in them are kind of just pseudo actors, right? They're just clones conjured up to be these false people for a moment. And I find this to be like a really interesting way to explore like filmmaking on a conceptual level. What do you think? I think you're completely correct. This, um, and let's let's kind of let's kind of build on what you're saying. So, Alice, the plot is literally the same as every other Resident Evil film. Um, no, which is the, which, <laughs> which is Alice wakes up in an umbrella facility and has to escape again. Um, but there, I mean, we we could write a, 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 like the two of us could generate an academic journal article on repeti- repetition and difference uh, in <laughs> in cinema. <laughs> through the Resident Evil films. But I think you're completely correct. Basically, she's trapped in a giant film set uh, in a, in a, in, on a studio lot. Um, they talk about staging these performances as ways of generating revenue. Uh, it is um, a globalized system of sales and distribution. Um, yeah, the, it, it, I, I, I hadn't kind of thought about that, but I, I absolutely agree that it's an, another iteration of a film kind of self-reflexively commenting on the condition of its own creation. Yes. Because that's what, that's what a movie studio um, law is, right? You can have, the thing that interests me about this is its organization of space, right? So you move from uh, New York to the suburbs to Moscow, but the, the kind of amazing thing about a movie uh, uh, production law is that you can have all of those spatially distinct places in the same place um so i i think that your theory about this being a kind of metatextual comment on the the it's its own conditions of production really holds up yeah and it kind of, it kind of also speaks to like the international contemporary filmmaking right because we're, oh, all, yeah, used, yeah. we're all used to like movies mo- movies never badmouth the american military and like if they're going after the american government they'll be they'll be very subtle and nuanced in their criticism um, because traditionally Hollywood makes movies for an American audience uh, because that used to be the dominant market, but we're seeing um, some slight shifts where now the Chinese film market is, is incredibly powerful. So we're seeing a lot of like nods to that showing up in movies and kind of like how umbrella is like mass producing this virus. And then they'll make an edited version where it sells better in America, then they'll make an edited version that sells better in Russia and an edited version that sells better in China. And like that, that also kind of reflects like this massive studio model where like the, the art is now a product, right? It's, it's something that can be like uh, micro targeted and marketed to individual people by constantly swapping out bits of dialogue, editing out scenes and just changing things around. And it's an ideological thing as well, right? Oh, yeah. I mean, Currently, we know that the, the the DOD and the American military is heavily involved in consultations and supplying production material to Marvel Studios. Um, we know uh, that mm-hmm. historically, 
uh, the CIA has been incredibly interested in uh, the kind of uh, operation of American ideological power through culture. Um, so those two things go hand in hand, right? The the uh, the oh, yeah. there there is no contradiction between this happening in a in a movie lot and the 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 uh, helmeted uh, and and jackbooted anonymous henchmen who just get gunned down in waves. Like there's no contradiction there. That's actually a really honest articulation of the intersections of American cultural production and American ideological production. Yeah, and I think like I would just kind of like cap this by saying like to turn again uh, to to the raccoon become human who is a problematic fave of both John and myself. You know, we we Slavoj uh, Žižek is who I'm mentioning for the for people who are new to the show. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, but I'm thinking like one Zizek is pretty good, hit or miss. Has a lot of stuff where it's like shutting up is free, but um, yep, yeah, yeah. I, I, I will say that like one of the most compelling things that he, that he frequently visits is we shouldn't turn away from like the quote unquote like low culture and trash of our society because it's still part of it, right? This is still our art and our expression and part of our moment. And all, all of these things are just so powerful and true inside of Resident Evil 5 Retribution. <laughs> you know, like, don't don't let these weird little cheesy movies slip through your fingers as nothing more than, like, quick cash-ins and lowbrow garbage. Uh, because they are indeed very worth the analysis. Oh, completely. Completely. Um would you have anything else to say about like the technical and experimental aspects of this film? Well, just kind of picking up on what you're saying, there's one thing that I actually think is really interesting, which is uh, how this film kind of explores the idea of interpersonal relationships and subjectivity. Mm -hmm. um, because the series so far has kind of established that death really isn't a kind of problem. We can always just bring them back. Uh, clones, it's fine. It's, it's the get out of... It's, <laughs> It's the get out of jail free uh, card, right? But like, basically that makes, you know, you might intuitively think that makes interpersonal relationships kind of problematic. And so when they find the uh, scared little girl um, who is just another clone, um, who recognizes the clone version of Alice as, as, her, as her mom, there's this moment where she goes, you're not my mom, are you? And Mila Jovovich replies, well, I am now. Uh, which is honestly kind of like, it's exactly what you were talking about there, quoting Zizek, right? It's this moment of kind of like ideological self-confirmation. And it happens in this instant where you go, hang on, we've just kind of like solved this big Gordian knot problem of like cloning and like subjectivity mm -hmm. and, and human authenticity by just going, well, I've decided, I've chosen and I'm like, that's kind of a that's kind of a bold writing choice, but it means that not only do you kind of like manufacture this kind of emotional investment on the part of the audience in a single line of dialogue, but you also get to kind of go, well, that's just how it works. You don't need, you know, what does it mean to be a real person? It's like, well, what do you decide it means? It tr truly, I mean, like, and I'm and I, I, not being ironic here in the slightest. That is a very bold philosophical stance that the movie takes right to to effectively say we're going to have this dialogue on our terms which invalidates a lot of these like ship of theseus of the self kind of questions we try to ask uh yeah absolutely absolutely um 
Should we talk about how this film gets super weird about the former Soviet Union? Fun fact for all of our listeners here. Um, uh, we might not know what the, the or you might not know what the USSR stands for, uh, but the R actually stands for Resident Evil. Yep. Yeah, yeah. That's that's that is that is historically true. Uh, if anyone doesn't believe us or wants to like try and be a pedant, just go away and read Lenin, will you? <laughs> <laughs> what is to be done? Open parentheses about the Resident Evil cinematic franchise. Close parentheses. I believe was the original yeah. title. State and Revolution is mostly concerned with breaking up the Umbrella Corporation. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, uh, man. Okay, at the risk of falling down a rabbit hole of, like, increasingly obscure Lenin jokes about Resident Evil. Um, so a huge... Ch- so this movie uh, is is set in a... Uh, um, in Kamchatka, right? In a former Soviet uh, secret underground sub-research facility and base uh, that, that features uh, super-powered nuclear Soviet submarines. Uh, the Umbrella Corporation has either bought or stolen or appropriated this facility for their own research purposes. Um, but there are sickles, sickle and hammers all over the place that for some reason, like, you know, they had the time to paint their Umbrella logos on everything, but they never painted over the sickle and hammer. I guess they just like yeah, the yeah. aesthetic. I mean, it's it's cool. It's cool. It's, it's, it's cool. And it makes me wonder if there's not like... Uh, you know, so someone in like the internal design department of Umbrella isn't sympathetic to like like the Soviet Union or the Leninist projects. <laughs> are, are you saying that there might be uh, like Trotskyist entryists into the Umbrella Corporation? I am saying that somewhere in the Umbrella Corporation, uh, there is a horror vanguard. <laughs> 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 but no, like I think that this is, is it's, there, it's, it's interesting on, on so many levels, right? Because like, uh, so Mila Jovovich as a person doesn't, um, you know, like a lot of celebrities, she doesn't talk about politics very often. She's come out as pro-abortion, she's come out as pro-gay marriage, but she never really comments on elections or anything that would give us a better compass for her own political beliefs, except for one thing, and that's she's a fan of Mikhail Gorbachev, uh, a big fan, in fact, and uh, so much of a fan that she went to one of his parties with her family. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and this is, this is because, like, so we've talked about the Resident Evil uh, franchise are essentially romance movies between Paul W.S. Anderson and Mila Jovovich. Yeah. This Resident Evil movie is almost a love letter to Mila Jovovich's parents, right? Because her parents, uh, Galina Jovovich and Bogdan Jovovich, um, her mother was an actor and her father was a physician. Her father was, in fact, a Serbian physician. Um, in the 70, late 70s, I believe, um, sometime in the 70s, Mila Jovovich's mother uh, go, goes, to do, goes to shoot a TV show, right, where she meets her husband, and they decide to get married, and, and the KGB immediately turns around and interrogates them. Uh, so they flee, they go to London, they eventually wind up in America, where uh, Galena starts kind of like encouraging um, Mila Jovovich to become a star. But um, Mila's talked several times about the fact that it was um, Perestroika and Glasnost, right? These these kind of like economic and cultural reform projects of Gorbachev that allowed her family to go back to their home and see their extended family and stuff like that. And like that bleeds into this movie in weird ways. Like when they get the car, like they get this cool looking car with spinner rims and stuff and like. You know, one of the characters is like, whoa, where'd you get this car? And she's like, well, we are in Moscow, aren't we? 
And so like that like that a lot that line in its own has the exact same energy as the Gorbachev Pizza Hut commercial. Yes, a hundred percent. It is it is this idea of like they're in they're in Moscow, but they're in a very particular time in Moscow, mm-hmm. right? We, yes, the, the camera might make sure that it catches every single bit of Cyrillic that might be written on onto the side of a building and every single uh you know uh hammer and sickle but we are definitely in uh post perestroika russia um there are pizza huts now uh that uh, the gorbachev goes to and there is this emergence of a new class of like, the hyper wealthy right the rolls royce mm-hmm. has arrived the rolls royce with a ne- blue neon underlighting um yeah has has kind of has kind of arrived and whilst you were talking i, I was thinking about the scene that car is used in is a chase scene between uh, our, our, our um, oh my god, A-team, you're right. Our, our hit squad in the you know with the modern weaponry uh, and rippling biceps and a, a brand new Rolls Royce being chased by an army of undead, specifically Soviet soldiers, mm-hmm. wielding chainsaws and uh, and Kalashnikov rifles, and it's like. If there is not a perfect image of the American cultural imagination about contemporary Russia, this is it. You know, hyper, the hyper wealth and hyper modernity literally being chased by a murderous band of Soviets. Uh, it, it's just in, it, an incredible moment. Right? Like, I, I really, this is one of the most intense parts of the films because it's like you are, your analysis here is just phenomenal. It is absolutely this contemporary capitalist uh, image, right, of conspicuous wealth and celebrity and power being just absolutely haunted by by this kind of almost cliched ghost of the Soviet Union. Mm. Yeah, ab- absolutely. I think you're completely correct. It got me. It got me thinking about kind of Mark Fisher's comments about what has happened to the soviet union since it's fallen you know what what's happened to that iconography right where did that go and how it's been kind of sublimated into this like capitalistic imagination right and like this like this happens so often in movies and not just like if because this movie like the cold war is well gone by the time resident evil 5 retribution comes out and the same can be said for that last indiana jones movie that happened Right. But like for some reason, like these specters, these Soviet specters are still haunting us. Right. Yeah. Culturally, culturally, the American imagination doesn't know what to do uh, mm-hmm. with with the idea of, of, oh, no, Russia is no longer the boogeyman. Right. So what you, you have is this uh, kind of haunting of, uh, well, if I might quote a, a kind of uh, a classic text on the subject. A specter might be said <laughs> to be haunting, not not Europe now, but contemporary America, right? If even in the, snatching snatching uh, uh, defeat out of the jaws of victory, and kind of returning to this repressed Titanic struggle between uh, American hypercapitalism and uh, Soviet socialism, um, it's super interesting, and I, I think it speaks a lot to the fact that like. Neoliberal American capitalism doesn't really have an enemy to define itself against. It lacks that kind of like the Cold War was a kind of monstrous 
waste of money and life on a kind of global scale. Mm-hmm. Um, but but what it allowed for was a kind of American ideology to think of itself as kind of morally pure, which is sort of laughable now that we look back retroactively. So it has to resurrect the ghost of of Lenin to 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 literally drive away from in a brand new Rolls Royce. Yeah, I think I think you're completely correct. Like I, th- I definitely agree that kind of this vision of contemporary capitalism is it's a negative atheology, right? Like yeah. it's it's a it's a parasitic worldview. It needs to define itself against something because it has no ideological core to stand on. Right? Like the 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 project is a hollow one, so it can only exist in contrast to an attempt at a better world. And so I think that's that's one of the reasons why we have this scene where they're running in this outlandishly expensive vehicle from like incredibly dated like Stalinist looking zombie troopers. <laughs> I I love I love the the nineteen fororties Soviet zombies with chainsaws and Kalashnikovs. I honestly, honestly they're the, like out of all the monsters in this one, they were the most fun. Oh yeah, absolutely. you know, like like vis- visually, that's that's an interesting image, and then like just the scenes that we get with them, like there, it's practical effects which look great, you know, like it's chaotic, it's fun. We have this little siege where there, where our heroes are in a bar and they're being beset by these like Stalinist zombie soldiers, <laughs> and like and it's just like like it's interesting and like like on on uh, like a kind of another level too, right? Like that set piece exists. So that Umbrella can sell their bioweapons to the United States government. So in yes. order to sell bioweapons to the United States government, they don't show Moscow in flames and being consumed by zombies or terrifying monsters. They show a Moscow that has returned to this kind of Stalinist iconography and has embraced the power of the bioweapon. So to sell to a, to the American government and to the American military project... They play on the fear of of this kind of American capitalist psyche. And if we compare this to like, so what do they do to sell to Moscow? They 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 show ideal America in flames. It's it's the suburbs of Raccoon City. It's this idyllic community, you know, like like uh, uh 2.5 children, the white picket fences, we're all living in suburbia, you know, dad's going off to his his high power executive job and mom's staying at home to look after the kids and handle house affairs. It's it's this very 50s cliched picture of what is supposed to be in the american psyche the american dream and it's that in flames so one side is getting sold an image of their enemy achieving a power that can't be beaten and the other side is getting showed a project of victory which i think expresses kind of this deeper it it goes back to that negative atheology right It, it goes back to this deeper kind of like hollowness of this kind of american capitalist vision Mm, yes absolutely Uh, and i think given everything you just said that really kind of um makes the ending come across in a whole new way right Mm -hmm. uh because i i i love the ending i love the ending so much so after a um honestly slightly too long final fight scene in the snow um which yeah it's fine um, we get the ending with our survivors flying off in a helicopter and they're taken to um, and an now semi-ruined. Again, this, is so, <laughs> this is so key. Like this, this ties Christ. in 
fits so exactly to what you were saying about the kind of empty ideological core of contemporary capitalism. The, the White House is now semi-ruined. Um, it's, it's, it's now like a war room. And the thing that I was thinking is like, who is keeping the lights on here? They've mm-hmm. still got in. They've still got internet access. Um, and and <laughs> our, our boy, our boy Wesker emerges as the president of the United States. And the thing that I wanted to kind of connect to what you were saying is the very final shot, which is that slow pullback to reveal that the what's left of the human race is a walled compound around 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue guarded by flamethrowers. And outside is nothing but fire and smoke and darkness and hordes of zombies. And I'm like, that's how America sees itself. Absolutely. When I, when I saw that, I was like, oh my God, this is still just the fucking shining city on a hill. Yeah. It's, it's, yeah, that, yeah. it's that vision. It's that ideological project. Because of course, the, the final stronghold of humanity uh, no matter how dark in like Independence Day, like this happens over and over again in cinema, no matter what happens, it's the White House. And, you know, we could we could go we could go on for like hours about the, the kind of perfection of making a corporate overlord like Wesker uh, the president. It would be like it would be like in the apocalypse. We, we suddenly vote in Jeff Bezos to save <laughs> us all. And, like. <laughs> And I, 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 I love this this amazing low polygon head villain so much because Alice's response, right? We've talked about this idea of like there is no great enemy anymore, right? So all that's left is the endless kind of reproduction of capitalist ideology. Wesker says Alice threatens to kill to kill him again. <laughs> he says, mm-hmm. "Yes, that you might do, but first you've got a job to do." And she just sort of sighs, and it's like. Time to clock on. Got to, got to, got to violently enforce American hegemony over a ruined and apocalyptic wasteland. But that's just what we have to do now. And it's like amazing the the, the kind of the exposure of of the, the. I really like that kind of analogy of this this sort of hollow core at the center of neoliberal uh, capitalism expressed here culturally for everyone to see. Right. And like, like this is, this is the final surviving paradigm for humanity is the yeah. president of the United States, some soldiers and, and a couple uh, officials that are shuffling around papers and looking at maps. God knows what they're actually up to. Yeah. So in so in the apocalypse, you have private military contractors, you have Chairman Wesker and a few nerds to keep around to keep the lights on. <laughs> Right, and, and and the whole you've got to job to do first thing from Wesker is so like, it's so telling, right? Not only in the dialogue, but in the but in the decisions that are made after that. Because you're right, like Alice just kind of goes like, ah, yeah, sure, you know, when in, when in like in any legitimate and meaningful sense, right? Like, why does Alice need Wesker at this point? What is what is Wesker actually accomplishing here? What is his role? What is he doing? Wesker is literally just the boss class. He is outsourcing labor to Alice, who has to go do the the actual work, the meaningful work, the dangerous work, while Wesker uh, tells some guys who are looking at maps to look at the maps differently. <laughs> uh, yeah. 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 What I'm, I'm saying is that in the previous two movies, the Alice clone should have unionized. 
yes, if there is a message from these films, it is always unionize your clones. <laughs> that is that i've thought long and hard about what i would do if i ever like turned a corner and saw a clone of myself and that is 100 percent the answer yeah unionize the clones everybody any final thoughts that you want to add but I, I, I do think like oh my god there's so much and like this is like this is the hard part about doing these mini episodes is that like with a movie like this i guarantee you you and i could put out a book on this movie alone like this movie is so rich and dense with meaning and material and like we haven't even scratched the surface of what's inside this movie so if you want to have a little fun um everyone everyone who has a copy of the horror vanguard home game can watch resident evil 5 retribution and have hours of fun at home in quarantine (laughs) time like there there is nothing but endless things to talk about We, we haven't even talked about colonialism you know, like, which I think is another key to reading this text. We haven't talked about all of just the, the baffling gender stuff that's going on here. Oh, yeah, absolutely. With with Alice being a mom who's not a mom and like, it, it just, uh, a meme of dude's head exploding and the galaxy comes out of it. Like, <laughs> but that's, I, that's, my, my, that's my final ramblings. How about you? I honestly have really appreciated doing this retrospective um on 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 the re franchise i think yeah i i agree like the downside of doing these mini episodes is there's so much we don't we don't have the time to talk about um but my goodness it it, it is a knotty visceral ball of 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 violence machine guns and discourse um and it's just been brilliant well, if you're into naughty, visceral balls of discourse, might I suggest to you the three animated Resident Evil films? Let's do it. Our work is not yet done. We will be back next week with uh, uh, Resident Evil Degeneration. Thanks for tuning in, creeps. And remember, stay spooky. Ha 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 